Hi, and welcome to Sustainability Solved, the sustainable business podcast. I'm Will Richardson. In this episode, we're talking about dogs. They are Britain's favourite pet, with some estimates putting the number of pets dogs in UK homes at 13 million, a number which grew significantly during lockdown. But as much as we love them, we can't ignore the environmental impacts of our growing canine population. One man who is working to make dogs a little more sustainable is Stephen Jenkinson. Stephen is a consultant who uses applied psychology to help landowners, property developers, councils and national parks, to name but a few, influence where dog walkers go and what they do. We feel this is incredibly pertinent to talk about this subject because more and more businesses are promoting bringing your dogs into the workspace which does mean that we really need to think about our dogs and what dogs impact has on our environment. Stephen thank you so much for joining us today. Um, So you're based in Orkney. I think we have to mention it to start off because literally we can hear the rain and the wind in the background. Personally I love the noise. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, yeah, I'm here on mainland Orkney, which for context of people is the same distance from London as we are to the edge of Iceland, still part of the UK. 500 years ago, used to be part of Norway. But yeah, and I mean, sustainability is is just wherever you go here, because, you know, for the last 10 years, Orkney has been more than self-sufficient in terms of producing its own electricity from wind and waves and tide. And in fact, the only thing that holds us back is the lack of capacity to send that electricity further south. It's gusting 60 here, so a little bit of a blow in Orkney terms. <laughs> but no, that, that's great and great to be talking to you today, Well, What moved you up there? I mean, it's just a brilliant place. Before I was here, I was working for the Peak District National Park and found actually that in terms of technology and also the way that the Scottish government was helping the islands be what we like to say is remote but not isolated. So in terms of the subsidies to encourage sustainable economic development on the islands, that was an encouragement. But also we have like a 25 acre croft here, which has got a small lock and land. And it's managed mainly for wildlife. So we have things like red-throated divers, uh, hen harriers, otters. So yeah, you can tell it's pretty rubbish really well, but I'm, I'm still here for 15 years. It's a place that is very much on my map and radar to go and visit. I'd love to, absolutely love to visit Orkney actually. I've not visited Scotland enough since I've moved up here. It's really interesting to have you know a lot of friends who work in environmental and they're all always thinking about how can we reduce the impact of what we're doing as consultants when, when we work. And a friend who, who lives in Aberystwyth, so in, in central Wales, and actually it's really quite hard for them to get to places, whereas here we're really well connected. And when you're having discussions about domestic flights, of course, there's a very different perspective when you're on the Isles because people tend to use planes uh, as folk will do trains uh, on mainland UK. And can you tell us a bit more about what you do? Yeah, for sure. I mean, my work is all about how do we promote the really good things about dog ownership and dog walking, but also minimise any adverse effects on other people, wildlife or farm animals. My first career was in the NHS, so very interested in people and their health. Then I became a rights-of-way officer and rights-of-way access manager in local authority. And in that time, there was some legislation that came in just over 20 years ago, the Countryside and Rights-of-Way Act, which was given an additional right of access to mountain moor, heath and downland across England and Wales. And it struck me that when that was imposed, there wasn't an understanding about where dog owners go, what they do. And actually, some of the provisions in that didn't work well. And I thought, 
actually, surely we can do this dog thing better because we know that around half of all our visitors to the, the countryside and that goes across the UK are people with dogs. So yeah, what I do now is actually say how do we promote the good things about dog ownership and we know from a lot of the studies that have been done across the globe in the last 20 years that we know that people with dogs are more active, they have better physical and mental health, they make quicker recoveries from operations, they're more sociable with other people. So there's lots of really good stuff which tends not to get the publicity. But then we know that there's problems too in terms of impacts on farm animals and chasing livestock and this sort of thing. Poop, which always comes up and I'm sure we'll talk about that later, but also concerns about both habitats in terms of nutrient enrichment by urine and dog feces, but also in terms of flushing ground nesting birds from their nests and this sort of thing. There's a concept that's come along in the last about five or six years called One Health and this is just a brilliant tool for sustainability in, in any context if you like because it was a group of both medical professionals, environmentalists and veterinarians and this is a, a worldwide thing you, if you google it you can find and it's basically saying that the, the health of humans is inextricably linked to the health of the environment and that's directly linked to actually the health of both companion animals, farmed animals, wild animals. We can't look at these things in isolation. If you like, everything has good and bad aspects and if we just try to manage narrowly, we'll actually, we can have unintended consequences or we can actually miss out on the really good things about dog ownership. No, I'll definitely look that up. Thank you. Um, so is dog management something that landowners are actively seeking solutions for? Or do they only consider it when you offer answers? Yeah, it's a really good question. And to start with, a lot of my work initially were funded by the Kennel Club and people like Natural England, Forestry Commission and, and in Scotland, the Pastoral Partnership. Because I just approached them when I was thinking we could do this better and just said, look, nobody seems to be joining up the sort of doggy welfare walking stuff with actually the environmental stuff. And the Kennel Club has quite a, a good balance view because apart from having a key interest in, in old dogs breeds and their health and people, it also have a, a seven and a half thousand acre estate in Northumberland where there's cattle and sheep and most of that is designated both for open access, so walking pretty much anywhere you want, but also some of the highest designations under EU regulations in terms of the habitats and the species. So it depends who the client is. So some of them are quite keen to use what I do to engage with people to get them more active more often but also then we'll tag in stuff about where the dog walkers go what they do what do you do with your poo when do you use the dog's lead this sort of thing but mostly i would say the landowners who come to me they've got to the point where it's like we're not making any progress it's like you can keep on doing what you're doing and you'll always get what you've always got and often you would see signage was done which the land manager might have thought was really good but actually you know bad signage is really easy to do. If people didn't respond to what was being asked for, they would do a bigger one or bigger letters, or sometimes you'd see them in red paint as if it's been painted with the blood of a dog or something. One of the things I do are like site audits. So, you know, like you have mystery shopper things for when you're looking at customer service. I do like mystery dog walker yeah. things. So go and check out what information's on site. How does it work together? It's really interesting because actually all the studies tell us that whilst we can do great signage and all this sort of thing, actually dog owners are most influenced by peer behaviour, yeah. what people like them do. And so working with dog owners as a community is kind of is really important. But also if we want people to do the right thing, we need to be really clear about that. 
we can have seasonal sensitivities as well as sensitivities in terms of area. So basically, coming back to the question, it's really when landowners have used all the old tricks and actually thought, how can I do better? In essence, I, I like to break it down that we've got three groups of, of dog walker. You know, we've got some angels who will just always do what they're told. And if it's clear that they will just do it and, and they're lovely. But then we've got those devils and we've got people who can have dogs or cars or whatever it is, who are the ones who are going to stick like two fingers up at authority. And the only way we're going to really deal with them is through the enforcement route. And that can be quite expensive and difficult, but we need to be aware that there are those people. And, you know, just because somebody has a dog doesn't make them a good person. But then there's this group of people in the middle that I encourage people to think of as fallen angels. You know, they're the people who don't intentionally go out to cause problems, but actually life or lack of information or whatever can put them in a situation which isn't ideal for the environment or for them either. It's like, where do we want people to go and what do we want them to do on your site? And then how do we communicate that in a clear way? So basically, yeah, they are seeking answers, but sometimes I think there's a frustration or people just say, oh, blinky dog owners or whatever, because there's a frustration on them that they don't have other tools. And so people then just go to a default behavior. It, it, well, the key thing is actually responding to the causes of problems rather than just reacting to the symptoms. Brilliant, brilliant. And when most of us think about the impact of dogs on the environment, we think about dog waste as we were talking about, about before. And what are the problems and how can you help? It's a really critical thing and for dog owners as well because dog poo can be really unpleasant and particularly if you tread on it but also if you are somebody with a mobility impairment and using a wheelchair or using a pram dog poo on the tires re really difficult to deal with but then there's issues for biodiversity as well because we're increasingly aware that leaving dog poo on the ground or even dog urine can change what's in the sward and can we can have a less diverse sward if we're looking at having things like hay meadows and stuff like that so that there's lots of reasons why we need to deal with this so how we can help and, and how people can help themselves is firstly having a clear message with all we know wherever you are in town coast and country you don't leave your dog poo behind a bit bit like the leave no trace approach that we would see for people if they're backcountry camping or whatever and, and another key message which hasn't always come out any general public waste bin will do you'll still see some councils that will have an, a dedicated bin for dog poo and then separately a litter bin and you'll have two teams going and emptying those separately whereas actually ends up mostly in the same place but the key thing is putting messaging on that to say it's okay for bag dog waste to go in here because from studies we know that around 60 percent of people when that was done a few years ago didn't realize that was okay and so that's why sometimes you can have a general waste bin and then people keep losing dog poo near it because they don't realize it's okay to put it in there but there are other things that can be done with bins so there's other work that actually if on the bin you actually say how far it is to the next bin that's really helpful so that people know ah there's somewhere coming up soon so i can put my dog's poo in there or even just saying this is this is the last bin also, placement of, of bins is really important. Sometimes they're left in the car park, but actually people, when they walk with their dogs, the last thing they want to do is to go back to the car park with, with an excited dog to put the who in and go away. And what what sort of bags, what sort of bags yeah. do you have? Because surely there must be an impact of having plastic bags. You'd, the, there must be biodegradable, like properly biodegradable bags, not biodegradable gradable in inverse commas yeah you're on the money there and it's a really important point because while people are picking up that there is the issue of the bags 
and you'll see some that are still promoted as biodegradable but some of them particularly the plastic ones only degrade in sunlight and what happens is that they shatter when they're exposed to sunlight but then we get in all sort of microplastics that you know they do degrade but they, they don't go back so the best sort of bags for people to have now are the ones that are derived from cornstarch so those are the ones that are properly compostable and while not everybody will have the opportunity to do home composting well they're going to biodegrade more in landfill more quickly if they're in a compostable bag but also if they do get left behind or something they're not going to be quite as much of a problem but it's really interesting because there's a general thought that actually putting compostable or biodegradable on bags can make people more likely to think oh it's not a problem to leave it behind so there's a, a real challenge there in getting the messaging right I mean, I, I always pick up and, and just as a sign of, of why that might not always be a good thing, I was doing some work for Dublin City Council in the, the Phoenix Park, so the big green space there. And I'd uh, flown just have to do from Orkney on three separate small planes to, to get there. And in the evening in my hotel, I thought, oh, I must have trodden in something or there was something bad in that Rangers Land Rover because I can still smell dog poo. And then I went into my coat and it's like, ah, there's a filled bag from when I walked my dog before I went, went away. So if anybody was on those three flights between Orkney and Dublin and thought, hmm, there's a funny smell in the overhead cabin here, my apologies, because I'd actually carried it all that way. <laughs> I'd really like to ask you some questions about planning. Yeah. And you've recently worked on some planning guidance with the Kennel Club, Whitehill and Borden Ecotown. That's correct. And Hampshire County Council. Can you tell us a bit about that project, please? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it comes back to what I said earlier, is that actually if we really want to help people have dogs in ways that are good for the environment and avoid the, the problems, we need to think about what are the causes of the problems, not just react to the symptoms. And so we know from all the data we have that around a quarter to a third of all homes will have a dog in them. In, in and around London, it tends to be about 10%, but that's still pretty high when you think about how many houses there are. In more rural areas, you know, that can nudge up to, towards a 30, 40%. So the key approach is actually how do we manage that? In essence, people with dogs want happy, healthy, hassle-free dog walks. You know, they're not wanting conflict often. They're, they're starting their day or they're ending their day. They've had hassle at work. They just want to relax with their dogs. So it's like, how do we help them do the right thing? So the approach for good planning that's used in England and which is underpinned by Natural England is saying, actually, we know that actually people with dogs once or twice a day want to take around a 2.6 kilometre walk. It takes around an hour and the majority of that they need to have some off-lead exercise. So at Whitehill and Borden at the moment they're looking about um, 4,000 homes. It was, it was a former garrison town where the army have pulled out and now they're building new houses on the site but it's surrounded by sensitive sites for, for ground nesting birds in particular. So up front it's saying right we know these houses are being built and as much as we would already say Where's the wastewater going to go to? Uh, where's the uh, where are children going to go to school? How are people going to be able to get to and from work and home and shops and this sort of thing? It builds in the question, so where are all the people going to walk their dogs? Because we yeah. know that the dogs are going to be there. And that's the key thing. So once you've got that, you then make sure that there's those good green spaces without offering off-lead exercise on people's doorsteps. Because in other cases, they'll say, oh, we'll ban them from here and make people walk their dogs elsewhere. Whereas actually from thinking from sustainability, you're saying, okay, well, is it that much better that people are getting in their cars twice a day to walk their dogs, often on short journeys, which we know can be the most yeah. polluting as well. And then how that's funded 
is actually because of the EU birds and habitats regulations, which underpins all this, it actually developers have to provide money both to, for the land purchase, but also for maintenance of green space. And on the say in, in the Thames Basin, so around Reading and to the west of London there, it can be between, for an average house, 10, 12,000 pounds added coming from the developer per property to actually pay for good green spaces. So, for example, farms have been bought up with the less productive ones or golf courses have been bought up and made really brilliant places for people to walk their dogs. And this is what the planning guidance is about, because if you offer somebody a, a no hassle, enjoyable experience on their doorstep, they will just use that. And that's just because it gives them what they like most. So they're very compliant with it. So you're not having to do this education about these birds are really sensitive or don't do this. It's self-regulating and that's a great approach. So yeah, that was the first um, planning guidance of its kind and it works. So you've got commercial dog walkers and they are becoming more and more, I'd say prolific, probably because we are seeing our culture changing and also, you know, the number of dogs increasing. And I think during lockdown, we saw that people were able to walk their dogs quite a lot. And then suddenly, oh, I have to go back into the office. Oh, I have to walk my dog when I'm in the office. And so you're seeing these professionals, you know, employing other people. And it's this, it's probably quite a big industry or, you know, it's probably, it's probably growing, I would hazard a guess. Yeah. I mean, what, what are the problems that that can create? Often people are quite naive particularly if, as you say they've been got a dog during covid which we, we know you know happened in quite a few cases they're looking to somebody to walk their dogs when they're at work but but remember it's not just at work it could be somebody working shifts and doesn't feel happy walking their dogs at night and this sort of thing so there can be lots of good issues behind it i make that point because some people say well what's the point in having a dog if you pay somebody else to walk it but you could say the thing same things about childcare or, or whatever it's a generally unregulated unre industry i like to make a distinction between the professional dog walkers who do a really good job and that there's some really good ones out there and the people who are commercial who i would say are just doing it for money done badly it can intensify the problems that we've talked about because people repeatedly go into the same site and not picking up their dog's poo or having their dogs flushing wildlife can be a concern there's a project that i worked on with scottish natural heritage as was in scotland where we ran a number of workshops for, for dog owners uh, for commercial dog walkers and they could come along and there was a talk from a vet but there was also a talk about environmental issues and how to be a good if you like green business and there was a real interest from those commercial dog walkers and say look there's some bad operators how can we add value to what we're doing so that the, the dog owners know that we're a better person to trust with their dogs and actually put these uh, if you like the cowboy operators out, out of business so actually good in giving good information to them is really helpful and there was a lot of interest in them in terms of you know getting a, a good approach often we actually don't say what we want so if you went go to the new forest national park authority they've got a really good dog uh, professional dog walkers charter which sets out you know what this looks like but the other thing is that just around the corner from you, Will, actually, the Eatlothian Council, they have a voluntary scheme for registering to be a dog walking business. But as part of that, um, the businesses get listed on their website. And, that you know, the people being listed sign up to say, you know, we'll do this, we'll always pick up, we won't walk the dogs where they're sheep or, or the sensitivities. And you might think that doesn't work, but what they found was that if somebody didn't comply, that they would you know, get a letter. If it was serious, there might be some court action, but generally they'd say, no, you're not abiding by all the rules. We're gonna take you off the list. 
And actually I found that was really effective because all of a sudden, if, if you're listed on a council website, you'll come a lot higher in Google rankings. Yeah. So if somebody puts um, Musselburgh or Portobello or you know dog walking, the ones that are on the local authority website get, get all the business and they've had these bad operators saying, coming back and saying, I'm really sorry, you know, I did this, can I come back on? And they're usually left off for a year because it hits their business. So whilst commercial dog walkers bring us some challenges, because we can engage with that commercial element to it and help people develop better, more responsible businesses, which are more attractive to their clients, well, that's uniquely makes yeah. other opportunities. So there's stuff that can be done. The difficulty is, is often local authority or the funding to, to actually just put in the effort upstream to deal with problems further that makes on. Sense. That makes sense. And finally, are there any instances where dog walkers have actually had a positive impact on the environment? There's lots of examples. I mean, first and foremost, I come back to the human health benefits. The communities being unhealthy and needing more pharmaceuticals or more interventions is not good anyway in, in terms of resources if we can reduce that. But also there's really practical things. We think about problems with dogs and the environment, but actually the biggest concerns are habitat loss. And actually because you've got people using green spaces, particularly around town or country or whatever it is, if there's a threat for those being built on or there's a problem, you know, you've got a big group of people who will lobby their politicians about green space and we shouldn't forget the value of that. A final one as well, which is quite interesting, is that people with dogs are more likely to take holidays at home rather than go abroad, which then links into taking flights and doing all this sort of yeah. thing. So if they've not got a dog, what are they going to do? Are they going to take more holidays? Are they going to just be become more sedentary? Are they going to do something that's even worse for them? Maybe they'll drive their cars more. So it's this whole joined up thing that really excites me. And as whatever, whether it's dogs or cycling or cars or whatever it is, how do we you know, promote and support the good stuff but minimize the bad impacts? Yeah. Because dogs is a people issue like everything yeah. else. No, it's, it's very true that holiday thing. It's um, Laura and I have talked about it and talked about the fact that, I mean, we don't, we actually haven't flown for years, but it's not that's kind of not the point we've we know that if we get a dog we'll be staying in the holidays that we're staying staying yeah. um, which actually excites us because we want to explore scotland more and we want to explore europe more so it's a good end so thank you so much for being on today it's been an absolute pleasure having you on steve thank you no brilliant and thank you for inviting me and good luck with that next dog that you get whenever you <laughs> thank do thank you thank you thank you and that's it for this episode of Sustainability Solved, the Sustainable Business Podcast. I'm Will Richardson at Green Element. For more information on the Green Element, today's guest, Stephen Jenkinson, and everything we've discussed today, please check the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions, you can get in touch with us at Green Element on social media. And don't forget to follow this podcast in your favourite app and write us a review. Thank you so much. <laughs>